0: a little recap then, we've gone obviously through a lot of material and so um, without going over <laughs> a whole bunch of stuff, this is the main thing that I have been trying to pound home in us. Um, if God comes to us and he uh, gives us a revelation We can only act on that revelation if we understand it, which means that the onus on revelation is God's, do you see? If you're going to communicate something to somebody, you've got to be a good communicator, otherwise they are liable to misunderstand what you mean, particularly if you use certain terminologies and verbiage which may be termed ambiguous, might be interpreted in several different ways. What I've been trying to bring out and prove to you is that God is not ambiguous in the way he communicates. Now, some of the word of God can and does have ambiguity in it. But here I'm talking about direct communication from God to men about major issues, major things. And remember, the very first... Lecture dealt with um, what I call those rules of affinity. Do you remember those? C1, C2, C3, C4, C5. And I said that uh, all of the major doctrines of Christianity, all of those fundamental doctrines, are either a direct correspondence from what the Bible says to what the doctrine actually is. You can, you can write that uh, verse down almost, and sometimes you can actually write the verse down, as your statement of faith. It says what you want it to say. So, Romans 5 will talk about justification being by grace through faith. Galatians 3 talks about the same thing. So, what is a Christian to believe about justification? That it's through grace through faith. There is a direct correspondence between what God says and uh, what we are to believe. Same with the resurrection, same with the the virgin birth, same with the doctrine of creation, and all of those major um, doctrines of Christianity. I pinpointed one, major one, uh, that is not a direct reference. And what was that one? But it was an inevitable conclusion based on uh, the bringing together of direct statements from Scripture. That was the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, the doctrine of the Trinity is like an inevitable conclusion when you have the data, the biblical data together, for the fact that God is one God, and yet the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And uh, you bring together those doctrines, and you come up with a doctrine of the Trinity. Um, unorthodox doctrines enter in actually not because of what the Bible says, it's because of the fact that we bring in our unaided logic to tamper with what the Bible's saying. And remember that uh, I had identified doctrines which might be uh, mainstays of certain theologies which are actually not supported by direct or even clear statements of Scripture. And I said they are C4s and C5s. A C3, by the way, just to, to inform people that weren't here before. A C3 is like an inference to the best explanation. It's when you don't have any clear statements of Scripture but you have data that you can put together to make a picture and you try and pick the best picture which has uh, the best, what you think is the best arguments in favor of it and the fewest arguments against it, okay? So a C3 is that kind and, and the, the doctrine of the rapture would be in there, okay? And I've said every, if you're building a systematic theology you shouldn't go below a C3. Otherwise, you're in the realms of your own speculation. In fact, you're not resting on the Bible at all. You're resting on your interpolations of the biblical data. And there's just a bit of what the Bible's saying and a lot of what you're saying. And that's not what we want to be doing. And so C4s and C5s, uh, involve an awful lot of inference that we bring to the text. But you can't go and find any text that, that supports these things. You see? Uh, and I gave infant baptism as an example of that one. And also gave the Christian Sabbath as another instance of that. Okay, Not only are these doctrines uh, really highly fought over by people that, that believe them, but they also seem to contradict and have skirmishes with direct statements of Scripture which seem to say something completely different. The doctrine of uh, definite atonement. I have some Calvinism in my blood, but uh, I do not see the doctrine of definite atonement, that is limited atonement, anywhere in Scripture. What I do find in Calvinist works is an awful lot of inferences to limited atonement on the basis of the, uh, the way they've joined other doctrines together. But then I find that uh, when they've come away from their theological studies with their inferences, they come to the Bible, not only do they have to find proof texts, which actually don't say what they want them to say, they also have to deal with those troublesome texts of Scripture which seem to completely contradict what they say. Okay? John 3.16 for an example, yes? And so, you shouldn't build doctrines on those kinds of inferences because you're not building them on the on the Word of God at all. You're building them actually on your unaided logic. And we can use logic and do use logic uh, in... A non-biblical way people use atheists use logic to argue away from God liberals use logic to say Jesus never existed or Jesus was a cynic sage or something like that Okay, these are uh, misappropriations of God's gifts they're not the right uh, use of what God has given us and just as uh, you can be a Michelangelo or a Mozart and have Amazing gifts that are from God. If you don't use them for God, then you answer to God for your misuse of those gifts. The same way that, that us, with with hardly any gifts, but some, um, we also are, are responsible to God for the way that we use them or misuse them. That includes reason. Uh, last week we we're in Genesis 22. Do you remember? And in Genesis 22. Uh, God tells uh, Abraham to do something which uh, might appear to be very unreasonable. In fact, the author of hebrews is is uh, he makes a point of of showing you how unreasonable it was and this was if any if there was any temptation at all to start employing symbolic interpretation, it would have been in Genesis 22. Um, We'd have all been tempted to, you know, steal a ram, call it Isaac, and sacrifice it, no problem. Okay? Abraham didn't even think about that. He took God at his word. That was an astonishing thing. But that is what Abraham is lauded for, for actually taking God at his word, for believing what God said, instead of, let's use these terms, spiritualizing, or spiritual, or uh, uh, making it symbolic, or making it typological, or making it, um, well, there's all kinds, expanding it. All kinds of synonyms are used nowadays. Abraham didn't do any of that. There's a reason that he didn't do that. Because if he had have done that, he could not have had faith in God. He would have had to have faith in his reinterpretation of God. Do you see? And if you reinterpret the word of God so that it doesn't seem to say what it seems to say, um then your faith is only as secure as the accuracy of your reinterpretation. It stands or falls then not on what the the verbiage that God uses, it stands or falls on what you've done with those words. Do you see that? And so Abraham doesn't do that and he's a paragon of faith. Uh, Abraham, in fact, he believes what God says and then he uses his reason on the basis of what God has said. What we tend to do is use our reason and then we, we reason to our faith. That's not the way he's supposed to do it. Why? Because our minds are not... Uh, the uh, running the show here. God's mind is running the show. Our minds are supposed to respond to what God says and reason after the revelation that God's given us. But that creates a problem for us, especially in a fallen world. Because in circumstances where God tells us uh, to do something that is really hard to do, like sacrifice your son... Uh, the temptation is to reason your way to another way that God, well, another meaning that God intends. Because after all, how can, how can Isaac be sacrificed? Isaac is the child of the covenant that God's been talking about all this time and insisting on. I mean, Abraham even tried giving God an out in Genesis 17. Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. God said, no. But in Isaac will your seed be known, yes? God has a tendency of doing things like that. So, you know, Genesis chapter 11, what do we read? Uh, There's a genealogy from Shem up to Abraham and Abraham's wife, Sarai, and guess what? She's barren. She doesn't have a child. And so... In the next story, Genesis chapter 12, here comes God with a promise to Abraham, and it's right, as, right away a challenge to faith, isn't it? Right away. Because she's barren. Chapter 15, God says, I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. Abraham says, That's great, but what about the child? gets straight to business. He's, he's bugged about this. You know, seeing that Eleazar is the heir of my house. And then, you know, so what do you have in mind here, God? God said it won't be Eleazar, but through you. And uh, makes that covenant there in chapter 15. Abraham's asleep. Abraham's not making the covenant. He's not walking between the animals. He's not uttering any self-maledictory oaths or anything like that. Abraham is asleep. God is the one who is making the covenant. The covenant uh, is unilateral. What I mean by that is just that it's God that's making it. It's God that actually is uttering the oath. Now, it is the oath, guys, that is the most important part of the covenant, Somebody can be involved in a covenant but not utter the oath. If they don't utter the oath, they're not under obligation to bring about the fulfilment of the covenant. They may be under obligation to do certain things that qualify them to be the recipients of what the oath promises. So there are conditions um, for example chapter 17 of Genesis circumcision might be one of them, yes. There are uh, conditions that may be put on them but the conditions are not the covenant themselves. Do you see? Not in a unilateral covenant. The only con- uh, real condition, the only thing that's in the way there is uh, whether the recipients can be true recipients of what has been obligated by God. God, though, has to one day come through with what he has promised to do. That's the key. Um, when we looked at uh, the first few chapters, particularly um, chapters 1 through 3, we saw this motif, and I've been bringing this motif out uh, for you. Uh, I maybe should have... I, I write it this way, but maybe I should write it the other way. God's actions equal God's words. Because words come before God's actions. Um, God always does what he says he's going to do. In fact, when God is talking to himself about what he's going to do, he always does does what he talks to himself he's going to do. There's no, in other words, the Bible never represents God as saying something or doing something that he himself um, says in a different way. He always does what he says he's going to do. Okay? Let us make man in our image and so he makes man in his image. Okay? There's God speaking to himself but he does it. Um, That might not be, might not seem a very important theological point but I assure you it's a very powerful theological point. That means that scripture does not present us with a God who, um, whose own thoughts are different to the words that he says. Do you see? The words that he utters are, uh, can literally be traced back to his own thoughts. Now, his own thoughts are more expansive, more knowledgeable than what's, in, what's been communicated. So that we can never know what's in God's mind exhaustively, not in any way. But when God tells us to do something, that's because that's what God wants us to do. Because that's in accord with God's own character and God's own thoughts. So God's words and God's actions is the motif that you find throughout scripture. You find it, for example, in Naaman. What do you tell Naaman to do? What did Eli- Elisha tell Naaman to do? Do you remember? Second, Corinthians cha- uh, Second Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5 Naaman, he's a leper. The slave girl says, oh, w- wish you uh, could go to this prophet who's in uh, Israel. Uh, he would help you. So Naaman comes up, you know, in his chariot with his train and so on. Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. Elisha just sends his servant and says, all oh, right, go wash in the Jordan seven times and you'll be clean. And um, Naaman's kind of put off by that. I mean, he's an important guy. He said, well, I at least thought that this guy would come out and throw dust in the air and, you know, do a rain dance or do something that's impressive, doesn't even do that. And it's his own servants that say, well, look, if he'd have asked you to do some hard thing, you would have done it. Why not just try doing exactly what he said to do? So he does seven times and God means what he says. Uh, to move up into the New Testament John chapter 21 we find that interesting thing where um, Peter has been told how he's going to die it's, it's kind of uh, veiled but uh, Peter gets the point you know when you're older people will take you by the hands and lead you somewhere you don't want to go and so Peter thinks okay so I know I'm in for it well what about this guy here Referring to John, what about him? Well, do you remember? By the way, you remember Aslan in the, um, and the, um, not the Lion King, <laughs> <laughs> Um, is it uh, Prince Prince Caspian? I think it's the second one. You remember that, that C.S. Lewis says, well. This is for you. You only hear the word that's for you. Do you see? So, what does Jesus tell Peter? He says, if I will that this disciple stick around until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Then what happened? People started spiritualizing what Jesus had said. And so, this rumor goes about that this disciple would not die. And then what does Peter, uh, sorry, what does John say in his gospel? But Jesus didn't say that he would not die. But, and then he repeats exactly the same words that Jesus had said. Why? Because God means what he says. That's why. So when God tells you that you have a home in heaven, you have a home in heaven. Yes? He's been preparing. And heaven comes to earth, by the way. Earth is not, uh, we haven't, well, we, we did that when we looked at the creation project. Remember I said, earth is not an afterthought of God, or it's not some kind of vehicle to get people to heaven. Earth is where it's at. But between the time that heaven comes to earth, you know, we go to Heaven from the time of um, the uh, resurrection until that, ha- that happens. Or at least until Jesus comes back and reigns. So that being the case, you can absolutely bank on the fact that God has got you covered. And whatever happens in this life, and I was, um, you know, we were thinking last week, remember, of uh, that pastor who was kidnapped... In Yemen, he was crucified. They did crucify him. Um, now, his sufferings are over forever. Now, he not only enjoys the presence of the Lord that he would have gone to without being crucified, but he also goes there with an increased um, glory because he glorified God all the more in his death and his suffering. He, sh- he participated in the, uh, in the sufferings of Christ all the more. And so forever, uh, that light affliction of crucifixion has been more than um, overwhelmed by what he receives, the eternal weight of glory that God had in store for him, but God can be trusted if he means what he says. If he doesn't, I've got nothing to say to you because I don't know what I'm going to say to you is actually right or not. But since I'm not shutting up, uh, I'm going to just continue to believe that God means what he says. So God's words, God's actions. Now, the covenants are, are very important. And I said the key question that nobody asks, that you need to ask is this. Why does God make a covenant? If you, if you read the, the literature on this, nobody asks that question. That's a pretty good question to ask. God cannot lie. God's word means what it says. I mean, you know, that's the best word you can have. The best guarantee you can have. Why on earth would he enter into a covenant? Because, as Les reminded us, we have a tendency not to believe. The problem is on the fact that we don't believe God. So God makes covenants graciously so that we will believe what he says. And so I've I've talked about covenants as being amplifications of clear speech about something important. Never about trivial matters. Always about something really important. No, wait, covenant's pretty important, isn't it? First covenant in the Bible that we can identify Anyone believe that there'll be a global flood again on the earth? Again, reason? Because you believe that God means what he says in that covenant. When God swears an oath not to do it, that's absolutely, you know, it's not going to happen. The Abrahamic covenant is also a unilateral covenant. It involves the uh, literal descendants of Abraham, and we know it's through Isaac and Jacob. We're looking a little bit on that today. And the land that is sworn to those people, because the people aren't a people, the nation's not a nation. The word nation is used unless they they have a land, an identity, an environment in which they they uh, think of themselves as being countrymen of. Yes, so I'm an Englishman. So I when I think of Of being an Englishman, what do I think of? England. I don't think of New Zealand. I don't think of the USA. I think about England. Israel are going to think about Israel. Yes? They need a land. So the land is covenanted to them. And we saw. That covenants, therefore, before they are anything else, they have to do with interpretation. They're hermeneutical. They have to do with the interpretation of God. Because covenants cannot be ambiguous, because covenants are, are very... You take great care how you... Um, the words that you use in covenants because covenants raise expectations and if the wrong words are used the wrong expectation is brought about and that can be catastrophic so covenants are hermeneutical now if covenants must mean what they say and they're hermeneutical I hope you can see and they're about big big things I hope you can see that nothing else in the Bible can cross those covenants So the covenants become uh, interpretive guides for the way we should read the Bible. Now, you don't have to go to seminary to learn that. In fact, don't go to seminary because you won't learn that. (laughs) You won't. You'll be told about Hittite vassal treaties and parity treaties and land grant. But you won't be told that simple stuff. Well, yes? Did you didn't you tell us that all the religions of the world and all people believe in that that, that Noahic Covenant really is real? No, they don't what believe, believe in the Noahic Covenant. They believe in the flood. Every ancient... That, that, oh, well, okay. Yeah, every ancient civilization has a flood... Um, Narrative, a flood story, yes. Yes, not every ancient civilization has a creation story, by the way. Often they take it for granted. There are only four ancient creation stories, but um, but there are 60, 70 flood stories. And I did tell you, I can't remember if it was last week, but remember the Chinese... Uh, word for pictograph for big boat is eight men in a boat so um so they have these um these remembrances sometimes they they're warped a bit but they do have these remembrances yes um we haven't gone into it here um because i i think it's actually a Side issue. Some people make their whole theologies out of this, but um, if you look at the the earliest pyramids are step pyramids, yes. The earliest Babylonian ziggurats are stepped. Uh, you look at the uh, Mayan temples and the Aztec temples; they're stepped pyramids. Okay. Um, that's because uh, they believed that the uh, these steps were, if you like, um, they were their ideals of the cosmos, of, of, uh, of the way that their gods had constructed, uh, the world. At the top was the dwelling house of, usually the dwelling house of, of the deity, or the deities. Um, and, uh, The, uh, the ziggurats and, and the pyramids, uh, they were thought to be the, like a mountain and, and God's dwelling place was supposed to be on top of a mountain. And we think about Olympus, for example, as uh, an example of that that we all know about. And um, so there's this, uh, this idea that you find in Scripture, although it's not worked out, it's not developed in Scripture at all. Um, but this idea that they may have gotten that as a memory that's been you know um, polytheized and, and messed up but they may have got that as a memory from uh, the original uh, dwelling place of God among men in Eden. Some people would say that Eden was on a mountain. They would go to a I think they're a very bad place to prove it, but uh, they would say that. And there is at least some interesting correspondences there of maybe some warping of a memory that people had. Same with the serpent, by the way. And some, yeah, you know, a lot of other things. So, so this is where we're up to then. And if you'll turn now, we'll just kind of look at a few incidents that we're going to Excuse me. Underline this and then we'll go on and look at uh, the Mosaic covenant for a bit. So, Genesis 26. And all I'm going to do is I'm going to just read out and highlight how God communicates this covenantal promise uh, to the patriarchs. So, chapter 26. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar. Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land and I will be with you and bless you. For you and your descendants I will give all these lands. And I will perform the, what? Oath. Which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give to your descendants all these lands and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So you can see that, that what he's doing is he's drawing upon some of the things that he'd already said to Abraham. Abraham believed God about the, you know, the stars of heaven in uh, chapter 5, chapter 15, excuse me. And God accredited that belief as righteousness. He'd uh, said that he would give that the lands of these different peoples in chapter 15 at the end there. He intends to do that. Um, and he also said in chapter 12 and verse 3, in you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And he, he repeated that in chapter 22. And that means that aspects of the promise, but coming through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob and the descendants. Aspects of that infiltrate into the nations of the world. You see? And by the way, the Apostle Paul never uh, mixes the different aspects. He never promises the land to the church. He always hones in on the parts of the Abrahamic covenant that are specifically for the nations. Oh, he often uses the term Gentiles. So you can see, God hasn't changed his mind, he hasn't uh, altered anything. He's just repeating the same stuff. Chapter 26. Uh, says that God himself remembers his oath. All right, let's move on to chapter 28. This time it's Jacob, and uh, there are two incidents here that are important. Chapter 28, verse 1, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and charged him and said to him, You shall not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take yourself a wife from there of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may be an assembly of peoples and give you the blessing of Abraham. And what's that? To you and your descendants with you that you may inherit the land in which you are a stranger which God gave to you. Um, the word God Almighty that's El Elyon by the way and I just tell you that because uh, when we get to Exodus we'll see that God says something about his divine name that we need to, uh, to deal with um, chapter 28 verse 12 then uh, and you know this this is Jacob's ladder okay? he, so he, he's dreaming a dream Behold, a ladder was set up on earth and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. We don't have any more commentary on that, which I really wish I did. I wish I knew a bit more about what was going on here. But we do know this. We do know that he saw a ladder. He saw angels going up on it and down on it. That's what ladders are for, for going up and down on. And obviously, they're for connecting one place with another place. So we can say that. Was it figurative? probably, angels don't need ladders, but um, at the same time, what, is, what, do you, what would you come away with if that's what you saw? You, you know, that's all we're told that he saw. That there would be a, a commerce, that, that there would be a, a, a living, thriving interaction between heaven and earth that we don't see normally but it's there. There's all kinds of things that are going on that we don't see. And these things, these maneuvers that are going on uh, in the unseen realm, they have a great impact on what happens down here. And by the way, what we do as believers has an impact in the spiritual realm as well. We don't see it. We don't recognize that. But uh, I I really believe that that's the case. So he sees this, and then behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac... The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. and You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north, to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There it is again, you see. All the, the elements are there, the three main elements. Literal descendants... Land for those descendants, and then through the descendants, the rest of the earth is blessed. Three elements. Okay, let's move on and uh, go to chapter 32. This is where Jacob, he's on his way back, he's just met Esau and uh, that went well. And But it, then you have this really strange, uh, this other strange thing, you know, as if Jacob's ladder is not weird. But this one, it's even more sudden, it's even more weird. There's no backdrop to it, it's like, bam, now he's wrestling with some guy. And <clears throat> verse 24, And now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he said, that's Jacob, I will not let you you go unless you bless me. Jacob is a rascal, but he's a man of faith as well. Samson was a rascal, but he was a man of faith. So he said to him, "What is your name?" He said, "Jacob." And he said, "Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed." So uh, Jacob is renamed Israel now. chapter 35. Verse 9, Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you. And to your descendants after you I give this land. And then God goes away. Alright. Um, <clears throat> we're going to now skip to the end of the book of Genesis. But folks, um, last, I can't remember it last on all the time before. I can't even remember what happened this morning. So, But I think last week um, I mentioned Uh, a scholar called O'Palmer Robertson who's uh, uh, written several books on this and uh, he says, and he's followed by a lot of guys, uh, he says that land is not an important motif in Genesis. I don't know about you, but it's come up every time. God seems to think it's kind of important. And guess what? It hasn't changed either. None of the promises have changed. Now, that might become a problem when we get into the New Testament. But you know what we're going to have to do? Wait. Accumulate some knowledge. Accumulate uh, information so that when we hit the New Testament, as much as we can, and we can't completely, but as much as we can, we come there with a picture in our heads, which is, similar to the picture that a believing Jew would have had about the promises of God. And then what we've got to do is try and, uh, we come with all this stuff into the New Testament and then the New Testament hits us with what? The crucifixion of Jesus and then he pops off back to heaven and then the church. And what are we going to do with that? We've still got all this stuff. Well, we're going to have to be like Abraham in Genesis 22. We're not going to be tempted to spiritualize it because we don't know this doesn't make sense to us. What we're going to do is reason by faith. And when we do that, you're going to see that things actually surprisingly fall into place. But that's a long way off. I do that so you keep coming back and uh, fill the coffers of Telos Ministries, which is it's just where I'm just I'm just getting rich with this. <coughs> How else am I going to get my SUV? All right. So, let's. So you understand what God's been saying here, yes? It's all pretty clear. Because it's covenanted and covenants are clear. Um, you can go to chapter 49 now, but um, the the gospel is a covenant. The gospel is a covenant. Uh, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, uh he says that um, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, said this is my body that is broken for you. Take eat in remembrance of me. Yes. And then this is the cup. This is the blood of the new covenant. Some people don't believe it is. But God says it is. Jesus says it is. It's the blood of the new covenant. So, when you take the um, the juice, you know, the, the, the wine or whatever it is, you are signifying that you're part of that new covenant. Do you see? So, it becomes a, a, an important act of you saying to God, I know I'm a covenant person. I know that you've covenanted to save me through your the the purchase price of blood. Do you see that? It's a covenant. Is it ambiguous? Gospel difficult? It's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, covenants are like that. Yes. Why would there be confusion in the, on what? On what you just said about some people do not understand or believe. Uh, I would rather wait until the next course to deal with that. Sure. But it has to do with Jeremiah 31. Yes. All right. So let's go to chapter 49. So this is Jacob at the end of his life, and they're down in Egypt now. Just as, by the way, God had said, hadn't He? God had said they would come down to Egypt. Yes, to Abraham in chapter 15. Did God mean what He said? Well, He didn't mention Egypt, but He said there were, you know, a people that would you'd be there for uh, 400 years, and. Uh, they'd mistreat you but you'd come out with possessions which is exactly what happens why? because that's what God said Um, so Jacob called his sons and said gather together that I may tell you what will befall you in the last days not round the corner as far as he was concerned the last days now we're going to come back to that phrase in a minute, but he goes through and he talks to Reuben first. Big disappointment. First uh, first child born, but really, you know, didn't do it. Simeon and Levi, likewise, you know, volatile with the rape of Dinah and, and the aftermath of that. Uh, then Judah comes in. Now, Judah, you know, he doesn't start off that promising, but he's the one who actually stopped Joseph from being killed. He's the one who who stands up and he's counted. He's the one who risks things, yes? And so Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. For your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Well, if you've got two enemies uh, battling each other, So, I'm, you know, I'm battling my enemy and my enemy's got his hand around my neck. Okay? I'm in a bad position. The idea is that uh, your enemies are in submission to you. Your father's children shall bow down to you. Now, that's kind of interesting because in Joseph's dream in chapter 35 Joseph had a dream that that the brethren would bow down to him now what's happening is that some of that has been transferred to Judah not to Joseph Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey my son you have gone up he bows down he lies down as a lion as a lion who shall arouse him and then verse 10, this is the, the central section here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. Now the word for lawgiver, by the way, it can be translated in different ways. Some people think that it's, uh, it's a mace that would be, uh, put, uh, hung there, and it's possible that that would be the, the uh, the case. Uh, that it's, uh, it depicts a ruler, and uh, uh, it also has to do with law. So it's been it's been uh, uh, translated as lawgiver in some translations here. So that means a scepter and a lawgiver. That means that somebody from Judah is going to be a king over who? Well, clearly, if the brothers are going to bow down to him, over the Israel. Until Shiloh comes, or uh, the one to whom it belongs. And there's debate about how to translate that, but there's not a big difference between uh, that, because obviously it has to do with an individual, and it has to be, do with somebody who will claim it as theirs, claim this scepter. To him shall be the obedience of the people, the nations. The nations. And then you've got some figurative language here. Uh, Binding his donkey to the vine. Um, So, uh, if he's binding his donkey to the vine, it means he owns the vine. That's kind of the symbolism there. And he's, he's doing it in peace, and he's doing it because he's checking out those things that he owns. And his donkey's cult to the choice vine, so it's going to be productive now remember that, try and remember that when we get into the prophets because the prophets going to say an awful lot about um, fecundity and about uh, the, the, uh, the land producing things. He washed his garments in wine. You know, well I wouldn't wash his shirt in wine but uh, that actually was, uh, was something that you would do if you had lots of money. And his clothes in the blood of the grape of grapes. Um, his eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. And then it goes on to Zebulun: teeth whiter than milk—that means very healthy. Eyes darker than wine—he's a healthy, uh, strong individual. Now the, that central aspect has to do. Notice the motif of the lion. Uh, mot- notice the scepter. And the fact that when this person comes, uh, he claims the scepter, and then all the peoples, the nations, uh, are obedient to him. So this has been uh, always seen as a messianic prophecy. <clears throat> now let's let's look at a couple of, uh, of verses here. Because we can't go through all of these things, but uh, let's look at Numbers, Book of Numbers, Chapter Twenty (coughs) Four. All right. So you know about when we get to to uh, Numbers twenty two through to twenty five, and so on, twenty four. And then also into 25. Um, There's another very interesting and important passage. But 22 to 24, that's Balaam. And Balaam is hired to curse Israel. And uh, instead of cursing them, he blesses them. Which is very frustrating for the guy who hires him. Um, by the way, Balaam is known from ancient texts. Okay, he is known from, from some ancient texts. So, um Chapter 24 is, a, is probably the most interesting one because here there's some very interesting language uh, of, of blessing that, uh, that come out. Look at, um, let's see, verse 14. We'll go from verse 14 to verse 25. And now indeed, I'm going to my people, come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people, that's uh, Balak's people, in the latter days. So he took up his oracle and said, the utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are open, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down his eyes wide open. That's his, uh, that's his prologue that he says, you know, kind of before he, he uses his prophecy. That's what, Eli- that's what Elisha should have done before Naaman. He should have thrown dust in the air and do some, something like that, because that's what they did back then. But uh, Elisha doesn't go through all that paraphernalia. But now, look at verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him but not near he's afar off a star shall come out of Jacob a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab that's Balak's people and destroy all the sons of tumult. Edom shall be a possession see also his enemies shall be a possession while Israel does valiantly out of Jacob one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city Then he looked on Amalek and he took up his oracle and said, Amalek was first among the nations, but uh, shall be last until he perishes. Then he looked on the Kenites and took up his oracle and said, Firm is your dwelling place and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned. How long until Asher carries you away captive? Asher was in Babylonia. Then he took up his oracle and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come across the coast of Cyprus and they shall afflict uh, Ashur and afflict Eber. Uh, so shall Amalek until his, until he perishes. So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place. Balak also went his way. So these are prophecies uh, against Israel's neighbors. Do you see? Some of these neighbors, they, they are mentioned in chapter 15 of uh, of genesis but notice what is what is um, bailate prophesying an individual who's going to come who's going to have the scepter and he's going to rule and he's going to have dominion and then uh, you know obviously over the some of these nations and then other nations too i would have thought so that's an interesting reference isn't it Um, Deuteronomy let's see, Deuteronomy thirty one. Let's just look at that one quickly. Just one little reference here. Verse 29, I'm not going to go through all of uh, this passage, but verse 29 says, For I know that after my death you will become utterly corrupt, that's Israel, and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. Um, Pushing this stuff out, not to the immediate time, but pushing it way back. Uh, You see the same sort of thing in chapter 4 and verse 30 which has a, a prophecy of the return of Israel but that they're not just returning to the land because they're allowed to, they're actually returning as believers which hasn't ever happened. Okay? But they, they actually have uh, the law of God within them. He's taken away their heart of stone and put a heart of flesh in them. In the latter days. Um, Nations. Let's just look at that quickly. Uh, So, uh, just two references. uh, Psalm chapter 2 verse 8, which is a messianic psalm. Clearly speaking about um, Messiah. Verse 6, I've set my king on a holy hill. Verse 8, ask of me and I will give you the nations, the Amim, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. The messianic prophecy. Uh, Genesis 49 is messianic. Numbers 24 is messianic. And you know this. This even in the um, Pentateuch, you're starting to get a picture brought up. Um, there's an excellent book that uh, deals with this in some detail, and it needs it's it's really badly edited, but it's a brilliant book. And uh, if one of you if you want to dive dive into some of this stuff then uh, john salehammer's book the meaning of the pentateuch really goes into some of this stuff really well (coughs) and then daniel chapter seven (coughs) one of the most important prophetic chapters in the old testament is worth looking at quickly here in this context (coughs) Uh, verses 13 and 14 are a messianic prophecy. I was watching in the night visions. Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is the, it quotes this actually to the, um, the high priest. He came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. So, you see, uh, the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs. And then when he's got it, he's got it. And I think that's what uh, is being spoken of here. Uh, His kingdom shall not pass away, his kingdom the one that we shall not be destroyed. Uh, now we're going to see in the next course um, that the expectation that the prophets build, because they build on um, on the foundation of the covenants in the Pentateuch, the expectation is expanded and embellished and given more flesh, Given more, the picture is painted out a lot more and uh, you're going to see that by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament God better mean what he says because he's spent a few thousand years saying the same thing to generations of people who have had expectations raised about it He better mean what he says. If he doesn't, if all of a sudden we start to introduce a different set of rules of, for interpretation because uh, of the cross of Christ, then we're in trouble. And that's where you get this clash that you find in a lot of... um of uh, biblical theologies. this clash between the Old Testament and New Testament. How can you reconcile them? Well, I'll tell you what, you cannot reconcile them by reading the New Testament back into the Old Testament. You can't do that. You have to change the Old Testament if you do that. Which means, what? Well, they don't reconcile if you just, you know, try to do it that way. You, you have to change one with the other. Um, there's uh, a book that I bring and I'll read it, some of its contents to you, um, maybe next week, we'll have some fun, by a man called G.K. Beale, uh, who is a great scholar, brilliant scholar, he's written a book called A New Testament Biblical Theology, it's a thousand pages thick, and that book basically says, yeah, the New Testament and the Old Testament reconcile, but they reconcile typologically. Through illusions, Uh, not illusions, allusions. Okay, not on the wink. You know, if you're sharp, you'll pick it up. Um, Well, if you say that, if you say that the Old, Old and New Testaments can be reconciled typologically, then you are tacitly admitting that you cannot reconcile them at a more face value level. And to me, and to all the liberal scholars, that is basically saying, you evangelicals, you are begging the question. You are already deciding the outcome and you are not facing the facts that are right in front of you. That in fact they don't reconcile. Or maybe they do. And they actually do. They yes, we do. But you have to remember what God has said and then read the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, not the other way around. Because folks, the first Christians didn't have a New Testament. Which means that if, if they'd have been handed G.K. Beale's works, they wouldn't have known what to do with it. Because that's not what their scriptures said. That's not the expectation that they had. And therefore, that's not what they believed. Folks, it's really important that you know what you believe is what God means. And the only way you can know that is that if God means what he says. That's the only way you can know. The same is the only way you can know anything that I say, what it means is that if I mean what I say. If I'm choosing my words carefully enough so that I'm communicating my meaning accurately to you and unambiguously to you. Did anybody look at uh, those uh, articles on a disingenuous God? No? Okay, you should, you should look them up, okay? Not because they're the best articles ever written, they're not, but um, a disingenuous God, question mark. Because in those articles, I, sh- I show you or i attempt to show that god must mean what he says if he doesn't then he is uh, if he doesn't mean what he says because he knew that he would raise expectations by what he the words that he did use and those expectations would be false because he really meant something else then he's being disingenuous if god is being disingenuous folks that tracks all the way back to his character and if his character is disingenuous you can't believe anything that book says you can't believe a thing that he says because his character is that way do you see it's in his char- it would be in his character to prevaricate did Jesus ever prevaricate did he ever mislead people no he didn't always answer their questions sometimes he says it's not for you to know or sometimes he went you know they were on a peripheral thing and he went straight to the heart of something but he never misled people God never will mislead you Now, your interpretations of what God said might mislead you, but you are on much safer ground if you understand that there are at least parameters around those words that you can't step outside of without doing violence to those words in their context. So that you are restricted to the words in the context and it's your job to study the context, study as much as you can To see what God says. Can you make sense of it? Does it fit as you move on? Okay. Or do you have to get some more? Uh, Change the uh, uh, metaphor. Think of it as a puzzle that you're doing. You've got the pieces. Okay. And uh, the pieces are, uh, as you are building the picture, you're starting to see there's a bit of sky here, there's a tree here, there's a bit of a house over here, Uh, there's a, a water wheel back in over here, there's a bird here, there's a person threshing corn or so on. You're getting a pastoral view, but you don't have all the pieces. Well, if somebody says, I've got the rest of the pieces and they bring into you some different pieces from some, you know, I don't know, Picasso painting or something, some cubist stuff, and you start putting them in and they say, that's the picture. I hope you can see you have a good reason not to believe that. Because what the, if they're the right pieces, they're going to fill out the picture accurately and you're going to have the full picture and it's going to be better and more beautiful than what you saw, yes? But it is going to be consonant with what you saw. It might add some detail, some, maybe put some things in you didn't expect. Any of you art buffs here? You familiar with uh, Bruegel's work? Okay. Okay, so Bruegel uh, 16th century Flemish painter, Bruegel. He paints these amazing pastoral scenes. Sometimes, you know, they're a little bit people are drunk and so on in them. But, but the pastoral scenes. Um, it's just a, a just a, you, you can put yourself into the scene. Although if you look carefully, sometimes you're not sure that you want to be in that scene. He's got one painting called The Magpie of the Gallows. And you look at it and it's, you, this, this is just a beautiful, uh, pastoral landscape. And then, there's this magpie and he's on top of some gallows there and there's a dead body dangling from it. What's, what's he trying to communicate? He's trying to communicate that, that this is a beautiful world, but it's, it's also messed up by sin and deprivation. It's not perfect. It's, there's something in it that doesn't, that's not right. Well, um you can, m- maybe, you know, your painting is the magpie of the gallows, so um you finally get the pieces and then you, you find this this gallows in it which you weren't expecting it kind of fits but it doesn't fit and it's like you need a little more information yes that is what the New Testament does to the Old Testament it fills it out but it puts some stuff in there particularly the church that you weren't expecting but I am telling you it doesn't alter the picture Do you see? And so as we start to move through, you're going to see, I mean, you're going to get an avalanche of data from the prophets. And it's all going to be around the covenants. There are more covenants that we're going to deal with. We didn't get to the uh, uh, Mosaic Covenant tonight. Uh, But next week, what we'll do is we'll look at the Mosaic Covenant quickly. Quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the Mosaic Covenant. Why? Because it's temporary and because they broke it. (laughs) Um, And then we're going to look into Numbers 25 at another covenant that's often forgotten about. And once we've done that, we may be able to move um, into some of the the summary uh, in the last week. So... Any questions or anything that anyone wants to say as we close? I know that we can't. I mean, you might think, yeah, but but uh, you can't do Leviticus and and go through all and yeah. Well, I mean, if you wanted to go through that and get your socks bored off by you know all of the Levitical stuff and so I mean, it's important stuff, but it's not the most riveting stuff, is it? And for our purposes, it's not necessary either, okay? Um, so, I'm, I'm picking out, there's more to come, but I'm picking out the stuff that we need that's consonant with uh, the foundation that we set. And you'll find that the other materials, for example, in Leviticus 26, that's a good place to look, the other materials uh, dovetail and work into that. Okay?